Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoptions by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Will you join me in prayer? Our Lord and our God. We ask you on behalf of the brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, that your Spirit's presence will be tangible to us. We'll be able to discern the Spirit's movement, leading, and conviction. So for those in here who need conviction, God, we pray your Spirit upon that it will be released into joy and to freedom. And those who need a conviction of comfort and assurance, Lord, may your Spirit do so in our souls that we may rejoice that we are your, your son's heirs and that we have received your promise of salvation and being set free from the law of sin and death to the law of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. How you doing? Great to see you all. We're going to continue in our Roman series. We're going to be in that very passage, those verses right there. I'll have a bunch more. You can follow along in your outline that's provided in your bulletin. If you want to track with my message today, the title of the message is Those Led by God's Spirit or God's Sons. How do you know... You have a son or daughter of God. How do you know that you've got one? They are led by the Spirit, and they are led into righteousness, not unrighteousness. Um, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, um, there was this movie. Like once in a while, you would come to school, and they would show you a film. And back then, they didn't have these really cool projectors like we have in the room right now. They had these old school projectors. Have you seen these? Maybe in an antique store or something? And, uh, and they had these big projector wheels, right? And these little ones up front. And so they would just kind of flip the switch and they would kind of go on and the light would come on and, and the hum of the machine would almost put you to sleep. As a kid sitting in class and one of the movies that they showed one day was called Stranger Danger. I think it's on YouTube. I think actually you can look it up and watch it on YouTube. So you know I'm not lying today, okay? And, and so what you would have is stranger danger. And so there were the bunch of kids out there playing in the, in, the, in the park. And they're sitting there in the park, and they're on the merry-go-rounds, and they're on the swings. And suddenly this guy drives up in a creepy white van. And he gets out of his creepy white van, and it's a 70s guy. He's got his dark... Uh, sunglasses on, his aviator sunglasses, and he's got like the 70s comb over, you know, the flip. And he comes up to the kids, and he says to the kids, hey, kids, and he's got two cups in his hand. He says, would you like some Kool-Aid? And the kids are like, no, and they slap it away out of his hands and run. And the whole point of the movie is kids don't follow stranger danger. And teaching a child to not follow stranger danger is a key part of their adolescent development. We teach them not uh, to follow those kinds of people that they don't trust. We teach them to look both ways when they cross the street, and then we reteach them that constantly. We teach them what to do in an emergency situation. We 
have them learn their home address and their phone numbers, and we teach them uh, that adults never, ever have to ask a child for directions or help, that good people never, ever offer you free candy out of their cars or invite you to come and see their puppy in their, in their van, in their weird, creepy van. And parents or teachers, by contrast, they lead the child to safety, to security, to help, to resources, to instruction. And likewise, we have learned that the Holy Spirit is a friend, not a stranger. The Holy Spirit is a comforter, a present counselor in your life. And today we're learning that the Holy Spirit is a leader. And the Holy Spirit never leads you into ungodliness. He never leads you away from the Word. He never leads you into unfaithfulness as a Christian. He leads us to new life and never back to death. He leads us out of sin and faithlessness, the faithlessness of our culture, and to the green pastures of God's abundance and grace and His security. He always leads us to share our faith with others, to give away this gospel, to give away this grace that you and I have so freely received. Last week, we learned that the Holy Spirit is God. And as God, the Holy Spirit has invaded our lives with His transforming presence. The believer's new reality is that they live in the abundant resources of grace. And the reason we have this new reality is because Jesus has died for our sins, taking our condemnation upon Himself. And the result of this transformation now has been a change in our position. We are justified and no longer condemned a change in our mindset. We now change the way we think about the world and think about life and a change in our walk, a change in how we live. Verses 12 through 17 provide for us now a kind of transition passage between the spirit empowerment of our present and what we can expect in the future. Now, the book of Romans chapter 8, probably the most important chapter in all the Bible, there are going to be some amazing powerful, big ideas that Paul is going to lay on us as Christians. You do not want to miss the next few weeks, but today we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17, and the main idea today is that the Spirit leads the believer into new life. It is a new life of liberty from sin and in righteousness and the rejoicing and security of our sonship as the children of God. So Paul first tells us, if you're following along on your outline, Roman numeral number one, is that the Spirit leads us to new life. Romans 8, 12 through 14, this new life is in place of the old pattern that we followed, which obligated us and enslaved us to the law with our minds and to sin with our flesh. And so how do we apply this new life in Christ we received by grace? How do we begin to unpack it? How do we begin to put it into our lives? Number one, he says we are released from our former obligation. Chapter 8, verse 12, look at what he says. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're no longer obligated to live according to the pattern or the impulses of the sinful nature. Now, this word obligated, for obligated here, is in actually, actually in the Greek is a noun. It is the word debtor. Some of your translations might say we are no longer debtors. And it's an accounting or a financial metaphor referring to a debtor or one who is obligated to pay back a sum of money, what they owe. And for the Christian, the obligation has been satisfied and paid in full. And while we tend to speak of Christ's atonement in terms of uh, sort of vicarious liability, That is to say that Jesus becomes liable 
for our punishment and then transfers his righteousness to us. We tend to speak in judicial terms, in courtroom language. We've received a legal pardon for sin which assuages God's wrath. We must be reminded that the New Testament also speaks of the atonement with other metaphors and other images and other kinds of language, and this is one of them. This idea of you and I owing a debt that we could not possibly pay under our own steam or in our own strength. Jesus said this about the purpose of his life. Mark 10, 45, Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. You can look that up later. Jesus said in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life as the payment that God requires for our salvation. And in Colossians 2.14, it says, Paul says, he erased the certificate of debt, this note that was held against us with the obligations, with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken away, taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So no longer debtors, the payment for our sin has been made. And hallelujah, we are released from the bondage that we formerly had in sin under the flesh, under the regime of the sinful flesh and the law. Jesus paid it all. Amen. Christian Assembly Church in Eagle Rock, California said it raised enough money to pay off the medical debt of 5,000 struggling families in the greater Los Angeles area. That's $5 million of debt of people who could not pay their medical debt. When they were asked by the newspaper why they did it, they said they not only did it to express the benevolence, the generosity of the gospel, to show it, they did it as an illustration to show the world this is what it looks like when Christ forgives us of a debt we could not pay. Christ paid a debt we owed. And we are no longer obligated. So then, if he has paid that debt, you and I are no longer in debt. You and, you and I are no longer debtors to live according to the sinful nature, to live according to the flesh. We're not obligated to do so. Number two, we are crucified daily with Christ. Romans 8, verse 13, he says, Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Walking according to the flesh brings death. But walking according to the Spirit, which includes putting to death or crucifying the old patterns of life, brings life, brings new life of the Spirit. So we do this mainly by counting ourselves dead to sin. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter 6, and what Paul told us there in Romans chapter 6 is because we have been baptized in a watery grave, we have gone down, and we have participated in Christ's death, we've now come up in resurrection life, and we walk in the newness of life. And what he tells us is, therefore, count yourselves, consider yourselves, reckon that you are dead to sin. He tells us to reckon that we are dead to sin. And do we have a further obligation then to live according to righteousness? I think Paul thinks he does, but here's the motivation. I'll show you in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, Jesus died for the church. He died to save a people. And when you get saved, you're part of a community of faith, Christ's community church. But Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. 
Jesus died for me. Jesus was nailed to the cross for my sins. The gospel and salvation is personal, though it's never private. And this is what it means to crucify the old man then still with us. Now the believer takes up his cross daily to follow Jesus, dying to that which previously held us in bondage. And notice Paul's motivation. It's because of his love. God has poured his love out in our hearts and shown us this great love. We are crucified daily to sin because God loved us and gave himself for us. Number three, in our minds dwell now on heavenly matters rather than worldly interests. He says in verse five, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on things of the Spirit. Now, we're reaching into last week's sermon because we mentioned this briefly, but I want to take some time to unpack this. What does it mean to have a new mindset? What does this mean now to focus and fix our attention on heavenly matters rather than earthly matters? That's a really hard thing to do in the Christian life, isn't it? Because so many of the things that inundate our lives and so many of the requirements and things that we have in our lives, they're just worldly matters. But Paul tells us to fix our mind on heaven. Colossians 3, 1 through 10, he says, So if uh, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where? In heaven. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The Scripture says that God has given us all things for our enjoyment. The the believer knows that God has given us everything in this life and the life to come for us to enjoy in the Christian faith, in community, in the community of Christ. And no one can enjoy life more, I would argue, than a Christian. No one can enjoy what God has provided and extract all the marrow out of life better than a Christian. But ultimately, we are not focused on the matters, the things of this world. We are focused on our heavenly home. Now, let me ask you a question. Where is Jesus? This one's not hard. It's not a trick question. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. We just read that. 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus, who has gone into heaven who is seated at the right hand of God, who is over all authority and power. And the powers are subject to him. So the New Testament affirms that Christ has ascended. Remember in Acts chapter 1, what are the disciples doing? Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they're standing there just kind of gawking, like looking into the clouds. They're so fixated that God has to send an angel to kind of get them out of it. And an angel has to show up and say, hey, what what are you gazing at? This same Jesus, he says in verse 11, who has gone into heaven, will come back in like manner as you have seen him go. Luke 24, 51, he left them and was carried up into heaven. So again, I ask, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. And who goes to heaven? Who enters the kingdom of heaven? Who goes there? Believers. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, one of the most righteous and learned men in Israel. He says, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 6, whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. That is to say, it has to be a person who is regenerate by the Holy Spirit, born again by the Holy Spirit. Those are the people who will see the kingdom of God. And you will see the kingdom of heaven or see the kingdom of God if you die and go to heaven or if heaven comes to you when Jesus returns, whichever comes first. 
Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Adonai, Adonai, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father? John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son, that is, sees that he is the way, the truth, and the life, Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and, he, and I will raise Him up on the last day. When you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, and you also have the promise of resurrection life at the end of the age, a new body, a new creation. It just can't get any better than that. Who enters heaven? Born-again believers who do the will of the Father. The only people going to Christ's heavenly kingdom are those who are born again by the Spirit and who do the will of the Father, which is to believe on the Son that He sent, His one and only Son. What is Jesus preparing for the born-again believer? What is He preparing? John 14, 1 through 3. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, you believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Would I have lied to you? If that were not true, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. Jesus promised the disciples that he would go away and prepare a place or open the way for them, returning to take them so that they could be where he is also. And what awaits the believer upon death when he goes to heaven, goes to this place, goes to the Father's house? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 9, in fact, we are confident, Paul says, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What's he talking about? He's talking about dying. He says, when you die as a believer, we would prefer, it's much preferable for us to be away from the body. That is, your soul will detach from your body when you die. Verse 9, therefore, whether we are at home in the body or away at our heavenly home with Christ, we make it our aim to please God. Whatever the state we find ourselves in, we make it our aim to be faithful, to please God, to be good stewards. Whether we are at home in the body in the world or whether we are away with God in heaven, in our heavenly home, Philippians 1.21. Let's just keep going. This is fun. Okay. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is that? Well, now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me for your sake. And I don't know which one I should choose. It sounds like God is giving him the choice here. He says, I'm torn between these two. In my heart, I just long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul is torn here between dying and going on and being with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The phrase fallen asleep is just an idiom. It's just a euphemism for dying. It's a nice way to say it. You and I say passes away. He passed away. What did he do? He died. And so where are those who have fallen asleep? They're with Christ. And when he returns, who's he going to bring? Those who have died in Christ. Now let's say... You save up enough money and are able to travel to a place you've always dreamed of for many years. Now, what is it for you? What's the place you've always wanted to go? For my wife, it's Hawaii. She's been talking about going to Hawaii since before we were married. For me, it's Israel. She doesn't care about Israel. (laughs) Now, let's say you save up enough money for the vacation of your lifetime, and now it is within reach. But to get there, you must buy plane tickets, which is a hassle nowadays, isn't it? You must plan and pack. 
And then you must double check that you packed everything you intended that's on your list, your packing list. And then you have to get transportation to the airport, and then you get to go through the long TSA security lines, which is such a joy. And then you get to wait hours at the terminal for your plane to arrive, and then you board the plane, and you negotiate space in the overhead bin for your carry-on, which is never, never big enough for your carry-on. And then you sit in a cramped seat next to some weird dude who wants to watch like all eight seasons of that nasty, filthy show, Game of Thrones. And you're like, ah, so you take your Dramamine and you put yourself to sleep. (laughs) So you don't have to watch that filth. But then you get woken up by a flight attendant. Who dares? Who has the unmitigated gall of running into your knee, which is now out in the aisle with her cart. So she can offer you the smallest possible bag of pretzels ever eaten by a human being will literally sustain you for 30 minutes. A little cup of Coke. And finally, you arrive at your destination. Your heart leaps in your chest at the announcement that the aircraft is making its final, final descent to this beautiful paradise destination where there will be palm trees and sugar sand beaches and icy blue waters and little drinks with little umbrellas in them. And you're so excited. And why did you endure all the hardships and the annoyances of travel with a generally cheerful spirit? Hopefully you did. Because your mind was set on the destination, on the wonders and the treasures and the new experiences that that destination would bring you. And setting our minds on heavenly things makes all the difference in the world. And believe me, we're supposed to make a difference in the world. When it comes to earthly matters, when it comes to living out our lives in this world, we're supposed to make a difference, but setting our minds on eternity makes all the difference. And it doesn't mean we don't pay attention to all the details of life, the headaches and the heartaches and the inconveniences and aggravations, or even the joys of this life, the things that we enjoy, like camping or not. (laughs) We make it our aim to please God whether we are residing in the home of the body or in our new heavenly home, but our focus is always and only on our destination because that is what must fill our eyes, is God's heavenly glory when he returns. Now, I've never met anyone who is more obsessed with heaven than my mom, Sharon. Now, as a 76-year-old lady, she eats right. She gets her exercise. She exercises vigorously. She has a wonderful social life, probably too wonderful, at the senior citizen's housing in Florida where she lives. She pays her bills. She keeps the oil change in her car most of the time. She loves, she watches way too much Fox News. She loves sappy, romantic Hallmark Channel movies, like those romantic movies. Actually, I should say she loves falling asleep to romantic movies on the Hallmark Channel because she's never seen one all the way through. And she enjoys swimming in her pool at the complex. She loves the ocean and restaurants by the beach. During Christmas and birthdays, she gives thoughtful gifts and writes encouraging notes. And she pays attention to needful things. But if you talk to Sharon, within two minutes, it will become very apparent what that little Pentecostal lady is all about. Oh, she loves her life there. But she's all about heaven. She's obsessed. She wants to go there. She knows Jesus, and she loves Jesus. Jesus is the love of her life. And I don't know 
who these people are. When people say, well, if you become so heavenly-minded, you, you just know earthly good. Who are these people that you've met that you could say that about? Because somebody who really, really is heavenly-minded is a lot of earthly good. Because they seek to bring the life of heaven to bear on this life. They seek to bring the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into their world. And oh, she loves swimming in that pool. She loves exercising in that pool. But let me show you. Can I show you by way of picture what she loves doing more? Yeah. That's Sharon baptizing her neighbor who lives there in the high rise with her. Let's see the next picture. She's going down. Bam. Coming up. Next one. Now it's just turned into a charismatic worship service, right? Everybody involved is just worshiping the Lord. She's out there baptizing all of her neighbors. You hang out with Sharon, you come to her Bible study on the book of John, you're going down in the pool, <laughs> right? And, and if you talked to her for two minutes, you would know you were in the presence of a person who is just so enamored with heaven, she could not be enamored with the world. She could not be tempted by it. And so the believer has been released from our former debts to the flesh to serve it. Verse 12, that obligation, and we are crucified with our Savior, now walking in the newness of a Holy Spirit life, and our minds are now set on our destination, our heavenly home with Christ. Number two, the Spirit adopts us into a new family. Well, such great news. I mean, we get this new life. It's eternal life, and then we get resurrection life at the end of the world when Jesus comes and the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and literally populates the world, literally remakes the world, and heaven and earth come together. But then the Spirit adopts us into this new family. Well, it tells us we've been adopted by means of the Spirit. And why does he write this within the very next, with the very next stroke of the pen? He writes it to encourage us. Why? Because we doubt we doubt whether we're worthy. We're constantly calling into question. Our flesh will constantly accuse us when we sin, doesn't it? And so what Paul wants to say is, listen, beyond the peradventure of a doubt, you are God's child. You have been baptized into Christ, raised in resurrection life. You are going immediately into the presence of Christ when you die, and resurrection then after, praise God, but understand that you have a new identity. Folks, it's not just critical for us to fix our eyes on heaven. It's critical for us to fundamentally re-identify with how God says he has made us. The issue in our adoption is a change of identity. If you get adopted into a family, your, your identity changed. And this new identity becomes the fundamental new reality of the believer. We often hear about identity in our culture, usually in the context of identity politics, right? Identity politics, we hear this all the time. And as an organizational principle, identity politics is entangled in the notion that some social groups are oppressed by oppressors. That is to say that one's identity in a minority group makes one particularly susceptible or to cultural imperialism, which is taken to be that act of the majority culture stereotyping or erasing ethnic distinctiveness or the appropriation of ethnic distinction or violence or exploitation or marginalization or any act resulting in the minority group's experience of powerlessness by those who are in power. <clears throat> that just sounds like communism. Like that just sounds like a communist worldview. Now that's not a worldview I hold. 
But if you're all about identity politics, I want to tell you the gospel saves you from that. I also want to be very clear that God hates injustice, doesn't he? Anyone who thinks that God doesn't hate injustice or unjust actions of people toward the other, you're not reading the Bible, friend. You're definitely not reading the book of Isaiah. <laughs> because God, that is a very, very pressing issue for God in the book of Isaiah in particular. And if you or I were unjustly accused of a crime and someone came and locked you up and took you, hauled you off to jail and threw you in the slammer, you would want justice, wouldn't you? You would want the justice system to deliver you justice. Listen, so long as there are sinners in the world, there will be racism, preferential treatment of the privileged, violence, exploitation, and slavery. Did you know that today in the world, globally, there are still 40 million slaves in the world today? 50,000 women in America, in the United States of America, are trafficked in sex trafficking rings. That's, that's to say nothing of what is going on in Central and South America. It's nothing compared to that. And this hemisphere is nothing compared to Asia. There is still injustice in the world, and the Christian, more than anyone, should work to see those evils undone, to, to see the truth of the gospel brought to bear in the world. The freedom that Christ brings is not just my personal salvation so I can go to heaven. We are to permeate the world, to infiltrate and, and populate the world with Christians who care about the justice that flows out of the gospel. I don't so much care about social justice, but I want gospel justice. I want the justice that grows out of the seedbed of the good news of Jesus. But here's the problem with identity politics, if I may tell you, this is I, not the Lord. This is just my opinion. It ignores all that God has accomplished in the cross. What it does is it wipes out what God has accomplished in the cross because identity politics reduces us it reduces a person's identity to their ethnic or social distinctiveness rather than focusing on our union and our unity around Jesus. Our fundamental identity is in Christ and his cross as a people, not in our social and ethnic issues that distinguish us from every other group. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, for we were all baptized into one spirit and one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, female or male, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, the one spirit to partake of. Galatians 3.28, he says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, and there therefore is now no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, since you all are one in Christ Jesus. What he is addressing here is not our ontological distinctions. Those things remain true. There's a difference between a male and a female. There's a difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. There's a difference between a person socionomically who is a slave or a person who is free. Those things are still true. But in Christ, in the body of Christ, as things that divide us, they're no longer true. Because at the cross, those distinctions are wiped out. These walls of division are torn down in Jesus and so my concern about identity politics is precisely that it redefines a person according to those distinctives that Paul says now have been obliterated. They, those walls have come down between us in the body of Christ. So what is a biblical vision of identity? I assure you the Bible gives us a biblical vision of identity. What is it? It's the, it's the end of the book, Revelation. 
When you go there, here's what you see. You see people from all walks of life, from every racial ethnicity, from every language, every tribe in the world. Instead of these factionalized, divided tribes warring with each other, they're all brought together in all of their glorious, beautiful distinctions and diversity, and they're brought together at the cross, worshiping the Lamb on His throne. That's God's intent for the human race. God is a fan of diversity, but He brings us together in Christ. And that's where the human race is going. That's where the human race is going. So our identity has been changed. We have been reborn and we have been adopted. We were sinners in need of rescue. We were debtors in need of ransom. We were dead in our trespasses in need of regeneration. And the Spirit has now given us a fundamentally new identity in Christ. Hallelujah. It's God's children. Paul says the Spirit is received, replacing our fear with an assurance of sonship. Verse 15, now the Spirit adopts us into Christ's family, enabling us to legally and justly cry out, Abba, Father. What does the word Abba mean? Well, that is a Greek word that comes into Greek from Aramaic, and it's the Greek word Abba in Aramaic, same word in Greek, uh, or it's the same word in Aramaic, it's the same word in Greek, and there's another word you can use for father in the first century. You can use the word pater. That's where we get the word paternal, right? So you can either refer to someone as a pater or you can refer to them as Abba. Now, if a person is not your father, if it's not your dad, you can't call them Abba. You have to call them pater. So if I say of Michael Hickenbotham, if I say uh, Michael Hickenbotham is the father of Daniel, I'm using pater. But if I see my father, I would say that's my Abba. That's my father. That's what it means. It doesn't mean daddy, it doesn't mean papa, it just means that's my honored father. Jesus taught us to pray. Our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He is our father. He is holy, and his name is sacrosanct. And so now the Holy Spirit who has come into our lives, we have moved from referring to him as the father of the nation or the father of Israel or the father of Abraham to saying he's my father. And the Holy Spirit allows us to legally and justly make that claim from the heart. From the heart. Number two, the Spirit testifies that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies. So verse 16, he says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit gives us an internal witness, an inner witness, confirming the fact that we have gone from one family, the devil's family, to God's family. He is now our father. Titus 3, 6 through 7, he says he, he poured out, Paul says he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with hope of eternal life. So if someone denies that Christ Jesus is the Savior and the Lord, if someone denies the gospel, the Holy Spirit will not bear witness to that message. I want you to hear me very clearly. The Holy Spirit testifies. That word testify means to credibly bear witness on a stand, on a witness stand in a court of law. The Spirit testifies. He bears witness credibly that this is true. And the Holy Spirit will never confirm. Listen, He will never say something that is false about you. And so if we deny the gospel of Jesus... If you have the wrong Jesus or the wrong gospel, the Holy Spirit will not bear witness to that testimony with our spirit. But he does for the Christian, for the believer in Christ. And number three, the Spirit sustains us in suffering. 
And he says, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And so this is evidenced by the grace and the privilege of suffering for his name, which results in our glory. So just as Christ suffered on the cross, resulting in his exaltation to God's throne, we also have been given the privilege of taking up our cross and following Jesus. Verse Peter 4.13, it says, Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Imagine the privilege there, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Christian, never complain about suffering for Christ. It doesn't mean we don't work to bring ourselves into a position culturally so that we suffer less. But so long as there are evil people, they're going to persecute the church. They're going to persecute the people who name Christ as Lord and Savior. Everyone wants to cross the Red Sea. Do you have any in your life? I do. But no one wants the Egyptians breathing down their necks, do they? We all want to go to the promised land. But who of us wants to go the long route? through the wilderness of pain and suffering or through the deserts of despair and loss, through the battles with the Amalekites at Rephidim, right? The vocation of the co-heir with Christ is suffering unto glory. I'll say it again. The vocation of God's co-heirs, those who are believers in Jesus, is suffering for Christ unto glory. And so when they put that crossbeam on Jesus' back, he walked down a street called the Via Della Rosa. Now, scholars debate whether that was the actual path he took. Nonetheless, the word Via Della Rosa, the phrase means the way of suffering. And when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, that's what, follow me, that's what he means. When a believer takes up their cross to follow Jesus, we rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. When I was, uh, close with this story, <clears throat> when I was a young man, I came to Christ uh, pretty early in my life, but then I totally rejected my faith. I walked away from God, but then I rededicated my life, right? I just came back to the Lord with all of my heart. The Holy Spirit filled me powerfully, mightily, and me and my best friends, my closest group of friends, we sort of turned my bedroom in my house into kind of a, what we called it the intercessor's room. <laughs> uh, so we were pretty charismatic back then. And uh, we, would, we just turned my bedroom. I got rid of my bed. I got rid of all the furniture in there. We got a bunch of little cushions on the floor. We would just come in there on Friday nights and just pray, pray up. And then after we got really prayed up, we would go and hit like downtown Richmond, Virginia on Gray Street, and we would hand out tracts and <laughs> witness to people. And so I was so excited about Jesus, and I was so excited, you know, like I was Sharon's disciple, right? So, um, <clears throat> so I was so excited about my faith, but I remember one day, no one was around. It was just me. I was in my room, and I was sitting on, uh, with my back against the wall on one of these cushions, and I remember praying very distinctly. I remember telling God how sad I was that I had lost my dad. My dad died when I was 14 in a horrible car crash. And he was a tough guy to live with, I'll tell you that. But I also missed him terribly. He was fun. He was a good dad. I mean, between beatings and stuff. And, and so, uh, but I was just telling God how much I missed him. And how much I wish he was still in my life. And, and I didn't have anyone to teach me things about being a man, Right? And I remember as I was sitting there and the sadness was just kind of come over me, suddenly the sadness broke and I had this unspeakable joy 
this sense of the Holy Spirit washing over me. And I heard the Lord very clearly say, today, I am your father and you are my son. And I knew that was in the Bible somewhere. And I went back and I found it in Psalm chapter 2, like verse 7. Now, that, that passage was not written for me. <laughs> that passage was written about Jesus. But that passage becomes the lexicon of, of a message the Lord just wanted to impress on my heart. And from that moment forward, I have always thought of myself as God's son. I have always thought of myself as a child of the Lord. Let me ask you, do you think of yourself as God's son, God's daughter, adopted into the family, reborn in this new family? I hope you do, because that's our hope today. I want to close with a challenge and a charge to those baptized today, and by extension, the rest of us. The baptized believer has been released from a former debt, the flesh, and is daily to crucify their desires, saying no to ungodliness. And we are to walk in the newness of resurrection life while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our minds are to be set on our destination, set on heaven, which makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. And we confess that we are recipients of this third person of the Trinitarian God, God the Holy Spirit, who has invaded our lives with his transforming presence. And by him, we can legally and justly call out, Abba, our honored Father. And the Spirit assures us of our sonship, not only with a legal change of status, but with an inner witness that you belong to him. Let me ask you, whether your father is alive or not, do you belong to him? Do you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this amazing, encouraging passage. Just a few verses. A handful of verses that say so many things to us. And Father, as believers here this morning, Lord, we want to cry out, Abba, Father. We belong to you. You bought us with a price and we commit ourselves to living according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That is our collective commitment this morning. And if you are not a believer here today, what are you waiting for? Do not walk out that door without making a commitment of your trust to Jesus, without putting your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him for salvation. Trust him to do for you what you could not possibly do for yourself. Trust him to forgive your sins. And nobody cares about forgiving your sins, but God does. Trust him to bring you from the devil's family to his family. By the Holy Spirit, will you do it this morning? Say, yes, I believe, I trust in what Jesus has done for me. On that cross and in, in that tomb in resurrection. Father, we commit ourselves to you today. We commit these who have been baptized, these families who have been baptized to you today, this morning. We're overjoyed at their commitment and we offer them, Lord, to you. And we pray that every day of their life, they will make the good confession, Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And every day of their life, they will walk according to the Spirit. And when they fall and when they stumble, God, pick them up 
We pray, Lord, that they would just confess and repent and move forward with Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you.